Hello, guys, and welcome to Yelling at Clouds. Part of the USIC network um, is a, a show that we put together from Shrewsbury, UK, to Florida in the US, uh, between me, Alex Whiteley, and my good friend, and the smartest guy I think I actually know, Mr. Eric Fluger. Eric, how are you, sir? Well, if I'm the high standard here, we are all doomed. But I am great. How the hell are you, man? I'm good, 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 good. It's been very busy, uh, doing lots of stuff, radio and uh, planning charity events and podcasting, and that don't stop really. But do you know what? Sometimes it's really good to just slow it down a little bit, and that's what I think Yellow Net Clouds is all about. Just slow it down and think about things a little bit. To just take a nice break. It's <laughs> not easy because there's real work in this. I I found that uh, it's fun, but it is work that is fun. But I'm going to bring it all to you today on a subject that probably may not deserve all of this work, but okay. Now, at least one time each and every week, for each and every episode, sorry, I, I'm probably going to look at something of mine, no matter how important or not important it is, and just kind of observe the impact it's made on my life. The film we are going to review today has had an absurd impact on my life, given how not that great it is. And we're talking about 1979's The Black Hole, made by Disney, and... You have, I believe, had a chance to watch it. You're not always going to be obliged to do homework, but if you can, why the hell not? Oh, it's all part of the fun, isn't it? But uh, when, when you said, I want you to take a look at my black hole, I got a little bit confused, Eric. Um, you Did know. you find anything wrong, Doctor? Or <laughs> I found a lot wrong with that film. Thank you so much for giving me Shit. such um, interesting homework to do. Eric, please give me these things uh, more often because genuinely, I find it. It's not even. It's not annoying or anything. It's actually like, wow, I'm actually seeing this. I would never have watched that film ever unless you'd have told me to. Um, so I do. <laughs> I appreciate it genuinely. I appreciate it. So, uh, are you yeah. quite sure, or are you seeing it through gritted teeth? Nope, nope. Uh, I, I. It is what it is. Isn't it? It's it's Disney that very. <laughs> that should be the very, long line. The black hole. It is what it is. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, <laughs> so, Although yeah, I could it, actually work. It is what it is into this discussion regarding the black hole. But go on, have fun with it. Uh, trash it a bit before I go anywhere. Enjoy yourself, sir. I just I think this was everything that was wrong with Disney at the time. Uh, they were instead of creating trends, they were definitely chasing a trend here, and they were like, "They've done this thing called Star Wars. Uh, we need to do our own thing. Um, what can we make with I don't know fifty dollars?" <laughs> and uh, that was the result. That was the black hole. Um, it's both like that and not at all like that. It's and I guess I'll explain. Well, the first thing we got to say is I. I I've seen the way the Hollywood reporter describes this film, and I think we can end up resting on that. It calls this film, quote, an uneven mix of gothic drama, kiddie adventure, clunky dialogue and characters, 
cool but derivative robot designs and retro-styled rockets amid a very colorful palette, a wonderfully moody John Barry score, and spectacular visuals thanks to signature animation techniques and ingenious matte-based special effects, unquote. All right, that's good enough, right? I, I think that's far too vague, uh, but yeah, <laughs> you think? Why won't he just call it a piece of crap? Well, I, I mean, guess. Well, go for it. No, because it isn't vague. What well, they, they they wrote a lot of complex words in there, but still, to try and describe that that um, that film in a, in a paragraph, I don't think it, how complex a dialogue you use, you're not gonna. You're not gonna. You're not gonna get there because it. It, it was. It was a hell of a mess in, in in so many different ways. One. One of which is um, the continuity is just all over the place. Yeah. With, with, can people breathe in space? Can they just hold their I breath? I knew it. I knew you'd say <laughs> that. You'd say that. Everybody says that. I said that when I first saw it. I still say it today. Why? Because it's fun. But. <laughs> I get here's here's where we should start. You were talking about chasing trends, but they weren't chasing the trend you think they were chasing when they started this project. From what I understand, now I should point out first and foremost that I researched that cheese out of this film, considering that it's this film, right? Um, yeah. Let me see. I mean, put up, pick one. You could at least have a sampling of some of the books that I've had to put to work with. Because, there you go, it's not just the movie. <laughs> is that like three different annuals and the, the the novel there? Is that what that is? You've got the novelization by Alan Dean Foster during the golden age of Alan Dean Foster, but we'll get to that. You've got your kids' adaptation. You've got a different kids' adaptation in hardcover. You've got a comic adaptation. Also, I managed to find the booklet that came with Anchor Bay's deluxe VHS version of the film that's not photographed. I found that yesterday, and that pointed out a very important point that I'll come to in a bit. Oh, my God. And none of this sh should be required reading for you. Alex, if you feel like you have to go to this links to watch a movie from 1979, sort of made for kids, but not sure, uh, just kill me now and save yourself. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, I do, um, I employ your, uh, your dedication to the cause. Uh, I mean, obviously, Sheesh. this is a collection that goes back years. No may kidding. I, may I ask why this had such a profound effect on you? I think we'll just get to that over time. We'll cover the things that I am a, that appealed to me in it. Uh, we should start by talking about how impactful it's been way out of proportion to the film itself. I, I named my company Cygnus Arts after the name of the ship in the film, the Cygnus. I named my cat Vincent in part because he only had one intact ear and because painting, but also because the robot in the film, two birds, one stone. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm not going to not say that I married my wife because her name was Yvette, and Yvette Mimieu was in this film. <laughs> it had a role. It's stupid. None of this makes sense to you, or to anyone, to me. Does it? 
but it's my life. This am I. I beat you over the head with this am I in the pile that we're going to call back to it occasionally. Here we are. And Yvette got it because she liked Yvette the Mew too, but she liked her from uh, The Time Machine by George Powell, not this film. Okay, we all have our things. <laughs> but, okay, I need to then now give you one of my brief speeches here because you were talking about chasing trends. Here's what my research revealed about this project. They were chasing a trend, all right, but not the Star Wars trend. This was originally going to be in the disaster genre trend. Hmm. I mean, I need to point out the, the, the films they were citing as influences. They, were, they had Airport 1970, a, a, probably the beginning of this, of this genre. Uh, the Poseidon Adventure 1972, the year it was born. Earthquake and the Towering Inferno in 1974, the year the original script for this was written. It was then called Space Station One. So I'm sure the thought was, why not bring the disaster genre into space and have the space people aboard a space station being threatened by space things, including a black hole? But they couldn't crack the script and it was put up on the shelf until suddenly Star Wars did what Star Wars going to do. Completely capture the minds of film-going audiences worldwide. And suddenly Disney was dusting off this project and using it to make its first of several attempts over the years to get on board the Star Wars train until finally in the early 2010s, they just said, fuck it, and bought the railroad instead, <laughs> along with pretty much all the trains rolling on it. Does it make sense there? Yeah, it does. And that is exactly... Um, how I think about Star Wars. They tried, they tried, and then they just went, fuck it, we'll just buy it. <laughs> if you can't beat them, buy them. Yeah. And I'm not going to speak negatively of it. Uh, we'll get to that when we finally get to my covering Star Wars. Oh boy, will we get to it. But I'm going to say it as a positive. So, okay, this isn't the greatest work of art. No one is going, shove over David Lean. Gary Nelson's in town. But at the same time, this isn't a bad movie. It's just not great. It's a meh. It's a movie. It's a mission picture. And we just have to cope with that. And this is definitely one of those things where I'm going to have to examine it and go, do I keep it? Do I get rid of it? Well, I keep it, but I keep it in full knowledge of how dumb this is that I'm keeping it. Which is a way to give away the ending right at the beginning, you know? Because yeah. you you have these sorts of guilty pleasures all the time. Sometimes not so guilty. What it is for you, Alex Whiteley, is going to be different than what it is for me. But by God, there'll be one. Pro maybe several. Who knows? I, I mean, if I could just interject as well. Please. I, I, like, you could add the, the generational gap between you and me but also at the same time um i am finding a new love for for movies of a different generation there are films that i i kind of avoided watching and, and this is sacrilege and i do understand uh you're going to be angry at me but when i was younger uh, on a sunday afternoon and i was bored and there was nothing left to do you know your mom would be like go outside and build a den or 
play with a stick or something, you know, or it was raining. They'd put old movies on, and I hated that. So I avoided, like, 70s, 80s movies for a while. So in my later life, I'm catching up with films like The Godfather and Taxi Driver and um, Indiana Jones even, because I had no interest. Even Star Wars, for me, wasn't a thing from a, a kid. It was uh, a teenage thing for me, Star Wars. And from then on, it just grew into this. Uh, it is a bit of an obsession now. Um, so watching black hole me looking at it as a, as an older um film is not going to affect how i feel about the movie because there were movies made around that era that were just even today mind blowing alien for one you know was just so brilliantly made and so visually stunning that you know and it wasn't that there wasn't that much difference between these films well, I, that's that's fortuitous for me because simply because of the ge- generational gap you describe, those very things are the things I have to bring up for a review within myself, and that's perhaps good for you in turn in that it'll be my talking you through my interpretations of such, and I'm at least explaining you why I would think, yeah, your exploration of those is worthwhile, but in the end, your judgment is yours. We're going to have fun with Godfather. You speak of Godfather. Probably going to have as much time spent on that as freaking Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll bring Bruno on for that because uh, he'll be the perfect addition. He's gone to the trouble of reading the novels. Good man. So the black hole. So we have an originally made as a disaster film. Now it's supposedly a film that's chasing star wars i i say that's true only on a vague surface level this is a very different kind of story this is not star wars this is not this is a horror film in space this is and many people have compared uh this follow-up film to it event horizon uh yes yes good shout there's a film you probably have more familiarity with than this one before you saw it and in very much, they're kind of the same sort of sub-subgenre of space gothic horror. That I maintain Alien did better than either of these two. But uh, mm. but it, there is real horror here. And the thing, the problem with the black hole, I will end up probably saying, is that it's not quite sure what film it is. Could a remake do better? There have been thoughts of doing a remake. They had a they they gave a shot to uh, John Spates, who wrote the script for what eventually became Prometheus, when it was still just an Alien prequel film, and the connections to Alien were far more solid. Okay, that guy could do a decent uh, remake of this. I bet all he has to do is just make sure the physics of black hole science is understood now are up to date. Work for Interstellar. Yeah, of course. I mean, and I have to wonder what a remake would do here. I I can tell you what I would play up if I were doing one, knowing that I'm not the boss of shit. All you need is a good cast, really, sometimes. You can write a garbage film and just chuck Chris Pratt and, I don't know, uh, who else is great? Uh, Name a good actress. Um, Christina, uh, Angelina Jolie. Chris Pratt and Angelina Jolie, I don't know, chuck them in a, in, in, in a, in a thing together and be like, ah, it's a remake of Black Hole. Look at the amazing graphics and special effects and stuff. And they'll just make millions at the, 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 the box office. But I feel like 
<laughs> I mean, I know how bad this film did, but did it? Be, has it gone on to become a cult classic? You know, is, well, is certainly. It gonna... <laughs> um, but the size of the cult probably would be up for a certain amount of discussion. But yes, I mean. <laughs> These things develop cult followings. Uh, Black Hole developed a cult following, no matter how small. Tron developed a cult following. Uh, it takes time and the generational shift to reveal those sorts of things. But yeah. And now, I guess we now got to go into why the hell this thing is even a guilty pleasure for me. And, and I guess the only way we can do it is just go through it. And through the hole. Yes. <laughs> Of it. The secrets of the cosmos lie through the wormhole. You'd need Martin Friedman on this thing. He, he could be a narrator of a remake. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it started as a disaster film concept. It got really remade after that. They threw out all the family Disney disaster film bullshit, and, and it became a science fiction Star Wars chaser that isn't really chasing Star Wars except in surface elements. So what is the result of all that? Let's chew it up and spit it out, shall we? Please do so. Right. Please do. You hungry? Ding. <laughs> all right. Get ready. So the film starts with an overture, doesn't it? It's one of the last ones to do so as I if I recall. Um do you prefer overtures in your films, do you think, Alex? So the music play? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming you watched it on Disney Plus. Yes, or, I did, yeah. There was, right. I mean, I, I was like, is there a problem with the picture? Uh, uh, do, do I need to refresh? Uh, <laughs> so why is it just, why is it just music? And, and no, I know, uh, yeah, yeah. And you would have been spared the pain if it had just said the text overture on it, like a many classic films do have or any image at all uh, the vhs for anchor bay just had a picture of the space vistas on it and yeah that was enough so so that was like so you'd have you go to the cinema you'd have your trailers and that was like your opportunity to go and get more get popcorn and stuff and food or go to the loo before the film starts right well that you had the trailers for and, and i'm sure they were a force then as although a different kind of force than they are now no, um the intermission was more for peeing yeah. If I had to pick why, I would simply throw a dart at because it helps set the tone emotionally for the audience, starting musically and then moving on to visuals and then the story unfolds itself. I kind of like them. It depends, case-by-case case basis. I'm not sure I like it here. It starts with the... John Barry music that I think is least tonally appropriate for the film. The stuff in the main titles is. Uh, I don't like the cheesy, slow plotting, yet supposedly heroic sounding music done for the overture. I don't. I don't like big intros to things. Like Speed is the perfect example of a really slow. Just come on, is it over? Where, where, where's the? You're just going up this elevator shaft, and 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 you're going up and up. Spider Man, the the uh, the two thousand. Uh, that's another one. It's just like this continuous, just text scrolling up on the screen. I'm just like, get on with it, please. Like you know, <laughs> I'm so excited to watch this film. Get My feeling is, is that it's I say as I say it's always a case by case basis thing. If it's right for the story, then do it. If it's not, don't. Uh, 
how would I handle it? I would probably just make it something akin to a music video where there's at least visuals that help construct the mood before the story starts. Yeah. Uh, which means it may not very well be an overture anymore. You got me. Uh, yeah. But the one thing that becomes apparent, uh, despite the fact that I don't like the overture music, is that John Barry, the English composer, conductor, is the secret weapon number one of this film. Obviously, we know him for the James Bond movie scores. He defined musically what James Bond is. And he's great for this. Whenever he does flat science fiction, I really end up liking it. He did Star Crash 2, which recently got a, a revival of interest because Mystery Science Theater quite wisely chose it. He did uh, the 70s Dino De Laurentiis King Kong score too and it's weird but it's a good score uh now you remember the main titles having these cool kind of computer graphic on it right where yeah, we have yeah. this flat grid surface and we pan across it fly around it is this meant to represent the space-time fabric i believe so uh the only issue i have with that is strictly I, whenever I see representations of the space-time fabric, whether it's for this or documentaries, plenty or what have you, they always use two-dimensional flatness uh, to represent it. Is that what it really is? Or is this simply a metaphor of two-dimensional flatness to represent a three-dimensional concept that an ordinary audience member couldn't wrap their head around? Or is that just the uh, the graphics that the, the budget could afford? <laughs> well, it's not that. I mean, this is literally... Uh, is it physics that the people making the graphics can't describe or can't figure out? Or is it that the space-time fabric really is like that, as a flat sheet almost? I don't know. And so when they show the black hole in this, they show it as a hole going downward. But is that what it is in other representations in film or science? Or is it just a is it a spherical object in space like anything else? Is is the gravity chart that this fabric is representing meant to represent downward or inward? I this is metaphysics bordering as physics, and it comes down to the fact that I don't know black hole physics from shit. Most people don't. Oh, it's funny you should say that. Actually, sit down. I've got some facts for you. <laughs> I haven't got Go for it. Go for it. No, 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 no. That, was good. <laughs> that wasn't going anywhere. That was just a case of I was expecting you to go, oh, no, please don't. <laughs> it's my classroom now. <laughs> uh, here's now, having said all of this utter like babbling, there is one thing that has always bothered me about not the film, but the way fans treat this film. Everyone assumes that this film is set in the year 2130. It's not. It starts with the robot, Vincent, Roddy McDell's voice, saying it's 2130, day 547. In other words, but everyone interprets 2130 as meaning the year 
No, it's shipboard time. It's a reference to shipboard time because Vincent in the very next sentence says there's going to be a course correction at 2200, a half hour from then. So it's, what is it, 930, 1030? 930, yeah, 2130. And on the 547th day of this mission. So that's always pissed me off about it. So when does this film take place? If I'm such a smart ass, this is the first time I've actually started yelling at an actual cloud in my series. <laughs> I like that. You stupid kids don't know nothing. So when is this? Well, okay. Put up picture two. Oh, and sorry. That will get me... sorry. Here we go. That'll get me started. Okay. See that right up at the top of the thing. December 24th. Hello. <laughs> here begins a real interesting theme that's going to go through this film about religion you might have picked up on it in the film shall i read that out well no all i'll say is that it says that this film starts on december 24th december 24th began much like any ordinary day aboard the uss palomino this is set on christmas eve day or christmas eve period so what year then? You really have to go into the tie-in materials like the stuff I showed you in the picture to get it. But picture three, thank you. Finally resealed. It's 2193. So hey, Flug, why do you give a shit? <laughs> <laughs> because, I, because I'm a crabby old man and it bothers me. It's all about the details, right? It's all got to be about the details. And I'm like, do your research, people. Come on. Not 2130. That's so lazy. And none of this is really that serious. It's meant to entertain. I don't care that much about it. It's just the little fanboy thing. I'm as vulnerable to that as anybody else, right? But I'll do it in a way unique to me. I'll play this tuba special. <laughs> now, where the hell am I in my notes? So this is the year 2193. They have been in space for 18 months. They were launched in I don't know, June 2192. And that's the, uh, that's the rough universe these people are living in. I need to make a reference back to Alan Dean Foster, that novelization you saw in image one. This was the golden age of Alan Dean Foster. If a film needed a novelization done in order to increase uh income from the film by having the story told in another medium novelizations were your key and alan dean foster was your man and because he gave a hoot about science and physics it didn't matter what the film had in terms of physics including whether people could breathe in space <laughs> hold your breath it'll be fine just hold your breath it'll be fine Honestly, I swear nothing will happen. Really? Okay, trust me, trust me. Go. Really? He would change the script to the extent needed in order to have it conform with physics or with simple plot logic, and he became like plot continuity spackle for many a story over many a year. Alien 3, the novelization of that made a hell of things more sense. And Alien Covenant, I'm my gut. He was the only thing that saved that film for me. Did, and don't even save that me. film? Did, uh, is, is it possible? 
when we get to that film, that is going to be me bashing that film and just having a delight doing so for a freaking hour. I can just be a crabby fanboy and beat up on things. See, we're doing it right now even. Yeah. But Alan Dean Foster did a whole lot of novelizations. Look him up. He probably did something you've heard of. Guarantee it. Uh, where was I? Um, did the Star Wars novelization. Um, so they're at this black hole. They find this black hole. Uh, the novelization says it's between 40 and 100 solar masses. That's the largest black hole, Vincent says, I have ever encountered. And what that means is it's probably near the upper range for what are called stellar mass black holes. According to my limited Wikipedia research, a stellar mass black hole can be anywhere between 20 to 100 or more solar masses, the mass of our sun, an intermediate mass black hole anywhere between 100 and 1 million solar masses, a supermassive black hole, any number of millions of solar masses or more. We could see the damn thing in the movie because, well, it's a movie. Alan Dean Foster, who cares about physics, says it's feeding off of a nearby star and therefore visible. And yeah, in real life, as far as I know, as long as a black hole is feeding on something, there is a trail that can give its presence away because it's sucking up something. Uh, the matter is being agitated up to high speeds and therefore it gets very hot and therefore you can see stuff. If it's not feeding off of something, the only way you could see it, I, according to modern understandings, to my uneducated head, is gravitational lensing effects. When gravity waves are so strong, then they bend light, but they also bend light uh, around the black hole, and it makes it look like it's underwater or stretched or what have you. In other words, you could see it that way. Yeah. Also, this film takes an interesting aesthetic approach in that space isn't black, is it, in this movie? Not at all. It's like it's an orange. orangey peachy color well even in the beginning space is very blue there's a lot of blue stuff and blue cloudy stuff in space it's not black with stars like star wars uh obviously that was deliberate but i'm sure it was practical too i mean a black hole and a derelict cygnus that is has all the lights turned off and is therefore black itself for a while in the film yeah that necessitates a brighter background for contrast purposes and it's a very creative approach to that and i guess that's one of the first things i was always caught by as to say well that's different that's cool that's trippy and indeed when there are shots in this film where it's just black space with stars and the ships are against it and those shots frankly don't look as good do they that you or is it a thing you noticed no, it's not a thing I noticed. I, I mean, there, there, there was a, there, there was a couple of scenes where it, it, there was like an orangey peachy effect to the outer, to space. Uh, when they like get to the shit. black hole, yeah, yeah. When it's all red and stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's a reason for that, and it, and both thematically and physics wise, it makes sense. Uh, but here in the beginning of the film, it's all this blue, spacey stuff, and it, it's, it looks more like space is painted on the side of your van. 
but I like that. I don't have a problem with it. That's a plus for me. Now, um, even for me, there will be moments where I just flake kids. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, it's podcasting. I forget my, my, my kids' birthdays and stuff on podcasts. It's normal. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, this needs to happen. It needs to be a little unformalized to an extent because as much as I like the lecture format, too it's got to be the right thing for the right subject and i don't want you to always feel like you're just made to sit there going <laughs> it's a good lecture <laughs> kill me <laughs> and so this is good for me it's good to be free form jazz as opposed to classical we'll get to that so i want to get to a major theme that's caught me about this film this is more general it's not plot specific we're not always just going to be going down the plot and going so then this happens and this happens let's go to themes okay the moment they see the black hole on their holograph ernest borgnine goes right out of dante's inferno right you caught that yeah and if there's one thing this movie makes clear is that there is a big old spiritual slash religious aspect to this film. And that I want to get into because I noticed it. I mentioned this little booklet I pulled out of the anchor Bay VHS set, and it mentions this very specifically. And I'm happy I found it just in time for this recording because this needs to be read out. It lists all the examples of these religious and cultural, uh, these religious references in the film, and they need to be spelled out. The quote, the quote begins: "Images of hell's inferno and heaven's salvation seemed out of place in a film that presented itself as a science fiction adventure." Another taboo in this film is that science and religion don't mix. Yet if one watches and listens closely, hints are given throughout the film. Didn't um, Seth Rogen say it in um, Paul? <laughs> she's like the the uh, really religious girl that ju- jumps in the RV. And she's like, oh, my God, uh, heaven and earth. Uh, there's no way you're, it's true that you found an alien. And uh, Seth Rogen goes, uh, bitch, I, in fact, I'm the exact proof that there is no God. And he comes out. <laughs> and he's, it's really funny. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a tangent. Well... It's. I gotta see that film clearly. Please um, watch that film. It's so good. It's so good. You'll love it. Be glad to. Um, but think of how many references this, this quote goes. There are references to the divine, metaphysical, and mystical throughout the film. It starts right as I said at the beginning. Upon viewing the vortex of the black hole, Harry Booth exclaims, "My God!" Right out of Dante's Inferno, when the Cygnus alights. Lieutenant Charles Pizer states with the wonder of a child, like a tree on Christmas morning. They omit that he also looked at the black hole and said, every time I see one of those things, I expect to see a man in red with horns and a pitchfork. Really? That's the first place your mind goes? But okay, that's another example. Then Harry Booth waves his hand in front of a faceplate of one of Reinhardt's mechanized servants. And he's like, that Reinhardt sure likes to play God. And then we get to... uh, Later on in the film, when Kate asks uh, 
Dr. Duran, Anthony Perkins, does he want to go into the black hole with Reinhardt? He replies, on a glorious pilgrimage straight into what may be the mind of God. I do. I do. That's a that's a decent list, don't you think, Alex? Yeah, and I it's it's stumped me as well. Um the whole the whole uh, religious aspect and and science thing mixing together and i went to was very lucky enough to go to a lecture at um shrewsbury cathedral during the darwin festival a couple of years ago and the guy that was running the the, the lecture i was very shocked to see wearing a collar he was a, he was a man of faith and i was like okay so he, he was a well-renowned um scientist physicist um and uh, he blew me and he explained that you know it's okay to 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 you know truly discover science and have belief at the same time so i mean that, that kind of called it for me it's like okay fine because there's a lot of a lot of, a lot of what religion is that is just a belief you know so, mark this down for the future because we'll be doing an episode on one french uh priest and paleontologist pierre Teilhard de chardin and when i lay out how he thought about the world your mind will blow so we're given a film in which a portion of the subtext is attached to very general Western cultural religious concepts. It isn't advocating the spe- specific doctrine laid out in Judeo-Christian scripture. It's not doing that. What it's doing is just clothing itself in popular culture's vague conceptions of such things. you got the basic concepts of heaven and of a hell that name drops Dante, but only because audience may have heard the name Dante's Inferno by a sheer cultural osmosis, but they haven't actually read the thing, so they can't know Dante didn't depict hell this simplistically. And then there's the basic concepts of a god and of a devil who looks like what popular culture says he looks like, without regard for what scripture has to say on the matter. Christ is there only in the sense that this takes place on Christmas. And that whole bit was cut out of the final film. You don't see it mentioned in there that this is Christmas Eve and they want to eat reconstituted Christmas turkey. So that aspect isn't even apparent unless you read the tie-in materials. And as I say, you shouldn't have to. I just happened to. So was it the writers who decided on this? Or just was it the general mindset at Disney in the late 1970s? You asked me that earlier. I don't know the answer any more than you do. Mm. But I mean, the difference between this and Star Wars is Star Wars was set in a galaxy far, far, long, long, in a long, long time ago. You know, so you know, relig- what we what we believe as religion wouldn't have exi- wouldn't have existed. Sorry, my words. I'm trying to get them out. Mm. Whereas this is set in a very sort of now, not now, but a more believable setting. If you get me. Well. I guess my only issue is that they don't play this theme up enough and it's not sophisticated enough in how it tries to execute it. Yeah. To establish my own stance on such themes in art. I'm never against the divine, the metaphysical, or the mystical in my art or in my movies. Do you think I ever would have gotten into Star Wars if that were the case? Do you think I would have started a portrait of the frickin' force if that were the case? Of course not. I mean, the caveat is that I might illustrate a concept with seriousness, like the force portrait, because I'm obliged to take the idea seriously enough to be able to depict it accurate to said concept. 
but I do not convert myself to the concept. I mean, the ideas in Oliver Stone's JFK might be compelling to me in a film, but that doesn't mean I buy into the conspiracy depicted in it outside of the film. I don't bring it out of the film with me. I simply suspended my disbelief enough as the observer to comprehend the work Stone's presenting me with. So while I may not be committed as a believer myself beyond being a freelance monotheist, I still agree there's a place in art for the comparison and contrast of faith and science, and that science fiction is and has always been one of the best forms for this kind of contemplation. It works a whole lot. It worked in Star Wars, worked in Dune, where there are still survivals of our forms of Christianity, even though it's set 20,000 years ahead of us. The 10,191 thing factors in a calendar reform change. But that's another episode, or God knows how many. Dune is another headache. So that's that's what I got to say on that for a while, although I'm coming back to that in a big way later to punch everybody in the head. Anything you want to say about, say, the Palomino, how it looks to you? Because it looks like a very basic, unimpressive NASA design on purpose. Um, so the Palomino was the ship that they were arriving in or the ship they were going to? The ship they were arriving in. Um, yeah, it reminds me of the bug out of um, Red Dwarf. I don't know if you know that. Um, I, I know I'd have to see it. I mean, as I say, there's a, gaps in my knowledge. Warned you the pilot. <laughs> so Red Dwarf, they had this massive, huge mining ship. Um, and uh, on one of the seasons, they, they lose the ship. Um, and then they end up on a little bug, which is a little green spaceship that they fly away in. And it's, it's like it, the kind of ship you have to crawl around in. Uh, you can get around. Yeah, it reminded me of the bug from Red Dwarf. Um, yeah, it's, it's not very impressive. But I think that is probably to play off the impressiveness of uh, the Cygnus, right? Most clearly. And it's also meant to represent another uh, competing philosophy of space travel. Uh, is cheaper better? The Palomino is the cheaper. Uh, this, the film subtly asks the question of which is better, bigger or smaller. Uh, notice there's no artificial gravity on the Palomino, even though there's stuff on the sickness. They could do FTL and artificial gravity, but they just decided they couldn't afford it. I mean, I know these people are about to get all the gravity they want in a minute, more than they want, but still... They may or may not have known about the effect of zero gravity on human physiology over time, but it isn't good for you. It isn't good for your skeleton. <laughs> so that's just a brief observation. Uh, they have S-Blink technology. You can link a human brain to an, to an android's artificial intelligence brain and communicate telepathically that way, and that's cool. According to the novelization that technology has only been around for about 10 years so since the 2180s film time and that's a neat idea what it has to say about the spiritual aspect of this god knows but when the effect is in motion you do hear in the music and sound effects a certain ethereal sound effect so it's not saying there's no no thing to say about spirituality with regard to ai or human eye. Human eye. <laughs> so, 
So it's like a tree on Christmas morning. The ship lights up. And it's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah. This ship. Go ahead. It was, I think there was definitely an influence there. There's got to be an influence because there's a lot of these ships of films of this era that kind of look the same. And when I saw it, I first of all, I thought of the ship from Alien. Um, that really long design almost looks like a rifle that's that's floating in space, you know. Um, but at the same time, there's enough uniqueness about it to to, to well, offer offer that unique look, you know. Definitely, and technically speaking, this is Christmas morning. By the way, remember I said this thing started on Christmas Eve, Eve at yeah. what nine thirty, ten thirty p.m. Given how long it took for them to approach the Cygnus and the Black Hole, the midnight shipboard time turnover must have happened. This is Christmas morning. A general reminder of time placement. Yeah, it starts on Christmas Eve, goes all the way through Christmas Day. Ironically, Christmas Day 2193 is the worst day slash night of these characters' freaking lives. We'll get to that. And perhaps it ends on the morning after, December 26th. Which leads me to my edgelord take. The Black Hole, like Die Hard, is a Christmas movie. <laughs> and just like Die Hard, I'm going to accept it as such in the ironic fuck you sense. Because there's no Christmas spirit in freaking Die Hard. It's about kicking ass. And this claims to be, well, it's a, got a bit more Christmas spirit in it than Die Hard, but... They could have at least put some lights on Vincent, right? <laughs> really? Alan Rickman would have made a great Dr. Reinhardt. <laughs> cool. Or, if you want to go against casting, he could have made a great Dr. Durant, Anthony Perkins' character. I think Christopher Lee's would have been a great... Uh, um, Max uh, Reinhardt. Why not Morgan Freeman? <laughs> we could. You could go there, couldn't you? Think about it. He's he, a father. Morgan he's Freeman a is a gentleman that you can't help but trust, and then it suddenly reveals he's a psycho. He plays a good bastard. He really does play a good bastard. <laughs> well, I saw him in Wanted. Yeah, I'm more used Shoot to him. That being motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite. Lines. <laughs> I have tried to do that line, and I can't make myself do it. <laughs> I can't do it. So, yeah, the sickness. Yeah. Considering the economics of space travel, this ship is freaking impossible. Um, it goes to the is cheaper, better discussion we had a minute ago with the Palomino versus the sickness. Everything costs money to get into space. The air you breathe, the food you eat, every piece of technology, every Rivet. Everything. Literally everything. Costs money. Um, that means, by definition, that a ship like the Cygnus is impossible unless, as the film says, it was pushed through by a man of such force of will that it overcame opposition. Now, the result for the film, as you say, is psychology over physics there's cathedral like high vaulted ceilings and angled bulkheads to evoke a sense of gothic horror right yeah but i feel like there's a lot of horror in this film that you make up in your mind 
Yes, and that's good because it's Disney. Evoking is always going to be the strategy over showing. They hadn't quite gotten the cojones to go that far yet. But even in a relatively saccharine horror thing, you could. I have a feeling you could still do psychology over physics and still have it make basic sense. There was a film that came out the same year, 1979, that had a ship that achieved the same level of gothic horror ambiance, actually better. But as you pointed out, that ship was the Nostromo, and that film was Alien. Huh. And I don't know if a potential remake could do things any differently, but if I design one, I would try to. Admitting that I'll never get such a job, but, you know, I, I can spitball for strictly spitball's sake. It's a great design. It is gothic and yet industrial oil refinery at the same time. It's definitely a different design than uh, other spaceships. It's not like the Enterprise where it has these beautiful hull designs. It's not like Star Wars starships where the look of this thing is meant to give you the creeps in a minute. It only gives you the creeps because it's dark and the lights are off and it's like the classic film Beaugest where a bunch of French foreign legionnaires come up on a fortress and it's totally dead appearing and there's no hello. But with all these control lights and panels inside and all the clear viewports, they still thought the ship might be deserted until the, before the lights came on. My God. They still need the damn monitors on in order to run the ship. General observations, that's all. Uh, the ship has air cars to get you from one end of the ship to another. That's very intelligent, but why have them go upwards or downwards as opposed to just in a straight line for efficiency and speed? And I think it's for purposes of inventing a ride for later, but I will get there and be just completely cynical when I do. Is it weird that I looked at that and thought of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka? <laughs> <laughs> Augustus Gloop fell into the reactor, not the chocolate. <laughs> in a way, you know, there's a sort of saccharine horror in that film, too. Only there, it's tonally a lot more consistent. It doesn't veer, veer wildly between tones. We'll get to that. Here's one thing I need to point out, just generally. The use of matte paintings in this film. You're, are you aware of what those are? Yeah, so they're the paintings that they would, for example, Star Wars, they'd design the backgrounds and then they'd draw on the, 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 the ships in the background and put the the white marks for the stormtroopers. I guess they did something similar for this, for the black hole? Well, it's, yeah, for set extension, environment extension, before you could do it digitally and do so in a way where the camera is in motion. There were always locked off cameras uh, shots. But Black Hole does something unique here. There were, by the way... I think perhaps about between 30 or 40 matte shots in Star Wars. This film has 150. Wow. And you can tell them. You can see all kinds of shots where you could see the, the digital extension. And what's cute about it is that now that there's HD and my TVs are big enough, I could see the brush strokes and the pencil lines, and I could see the seams where they're married to the footage. And then, I'm not disappointed or anything. It's not like there's an illusion to be ruined here. Do you want me to bring I'm up the just, picture? Um, 
no no need for that no need um um no uh, if it's for the thing i'm thinking of that's for a much very specific shot later and that's strictly about composition and not about map paintings but that's a more general art lesson i have for you we'll get there uh, this robot, Maximilian, did they name the robot before or after they cast Maximilian Shell as the villain? <laughs> That's hilarious. So, given the, uh, by the way, given the revelation with these humanoid crew members on the sickness, spoilers, Vincent couldn't detect a skeletal structure or biosigns in these humanoids? He can't detect a pulse? He just says they appear to be some sort of robot. He can't detect energy readings specific to robots. No battery, no power source. Does Vincent even have sensors or scanners of that kind? Does he have a tricorder? What the shit, Vincent? Come on. <laughs> now we got to talk about the Sentry robots because we're Star Wars fans and we're like, up, oh, up, oh, oh, stormtroopers. And we can't not do that because we're assholes. But I saw the designs for the Century Robots. They do look great. They're designed by George McGinnis. And, and uh, okay, sure. They evoke the Stormtroopers. Let's talk about how else they evoke freaking fascist imagery. Is that a robot walk these Sentries are doing? Or could they not get the knees of the costume to bend? Or is it meant to evoke the goose step? What do you yeah. think? I I did I gotta say when I saw them marching like that in column, I was thinking, all you need is a, a steady jog, <laughs> and you'd be able to. Even if they're shooting laser, if you're lucky, you could you could leave them for dust, couldn't you? You know, I know, very they, heavy, they very heavy. They can't haul ass at all when they're doing that, and they have to chase people, and they're no good at it. Stop! I can't keep up. <laughs> But it does it look like the goose step? If so, we're talking about evoking fascist imagery in order to trigger subconscious reactions in the audience. Now, for those who don't know inside history baseball, what we've long called the goose step is, is a special marching step that you perform on formal military parades. And like so many of the German military traditions that the Nazis appropriated for themselves in the early 20th century, uh, this tradition began in Prussia the largest of the German states in the pre-unification period in the mid-18th century. It was called the Steckschritt, literally the piercing step. And obviously how it works is that while you march in parade for formation, troops swing their legs in unison off the ground while keeping each leg, each leg straight, rigidly straight. Now, clearly the intended audience of the film and the purpose of doing the leg rigid straight thing is practical, as stupid as it looks to us. It's meant to keep formation. A British army soldiers swung their arms in marching uh, style for the same reason. Yeah. And it went out of favor for practical reasons, too. You don't want to march towards an enemy that has longer range guns. So, yeah, that fell out of fashion, which strictly became ceremonial. Um, but as well, you know, you say to you say to any child march like a, a soldier and they will do that that is like the thing they do isn't it it's comical and i think it's because it became transferred to us via this kind of cultural osmosis in other words the intended audience of this film or at least the adult members are meant to interpret the robots through the lens of their nation's experiences in the two world wars 
both of whom revolved around Germany in some way, the second in particular. Oh boy, did it. And we shouldn't leave out the fact that the Nazis appropriated this tradition so thoroughly that after they fell, there was no moral basis to maintain the tradition anymore because they put their stink on it so much. And we shouldn't leave out that fact because clearly the audience was meant to make the association of these robots doing their goof-ass stupid step with a general theme of an absolutist state run by a madman whose will was so strong that it turned every other individual in his sphere into reflections of himself, which the sickness is revealed to be. Uh, we'll cover that metaphor more in a bit. But that's my impression. Yeah, this is meant to imply that things are fishy here. It's actually very terrifying in this place. I don't care how pretty the show, the ship looks Christmas tree style. Also, you notice the color of these century robots is burgundy. It's like the color of dried blood. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why they did that. It to evoke a, a subconscious reaction in the audience. It, as I say, when I say dried blood, that's meant to somehow trigger something in the clammy flab of the back of your brain. Does it work, though, on you is the question. Uh, no. Uh, the, the, uh, the, there is an aspect to this film that I found terrifying, uh, but I'll, I'll get onto that when we, we get onto that. But um, the, the actual robots themselves... I, I found comical <laughs> more than intimidating. <laughs> Sorry, but that's because I've seen, storm, I've seen stormtroopers, and you know, there's there's nothing scary about a stormtrooper. But at the same time, at least they moved like humans. Do you know but what I mean? they're meant to resemble skeleton skull guys. Yeah. Don't you get it? There's yeah, yeah. there's a subconscious thing it's attempting to trigger. Terror styling, Star Wars calls it, and that's the intent. As opposed to the execution, we both agree about the execution. All right, um, one general observation. And Anthony Perkins is here, and I'm happy to have him here. Obviously, I loved him in Psycho. I like to play the game with people. Do you know that there are two people in this film that were actually in Psycho? Obviously, Anthony Perkins, but who else? Robert Forster was in Psycho. I, but it's a I, trick question because it was the remake that Gus Van Sant make, and he was playing the psychiatrist in that. Robert Forster was an absolute genius. I love him as an actor. I thought he was fantastic in everything he was in, to be honest. Everybody who worked on this film had nothing but good to say on Robert Forster, and it seems everybody who ever works on anything with him has that to say about him. He's a consummate professional and a true sweetie. He's the only person I recognise from the cast, but then again, I'm from, I'm not from that era. But I recognise him straight away as a young Robert Forster. Yeah, wonderful. And he had a great role in the recent Twin Peaks revival too. I loved him, goddamn anything. But we get to Perkins. He's playing an acolyte of a fanatic, except he doesn't begin the film knowing he wants that. He's just so utterly bored with the fact that he's been out in space for eighteen months and hasn't found shit, and now suddenly he's in orbit of this genius who is recognized as such and has a strength of will so strong that he overcomes all people around him. Perkins is the canary in the coal mine for that effect for us, the audience. And Perkins plays it so well. I, I totally got to give him props for this, regardless of anything else quality wise. 
Uh, by the way, old Bob. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> I love him. Played by... Uh, Slim Pickens. Thank you. Uh, for a moment, uh, I thought I Snake Plissken. I thought Snake Plissken. I'm like, that's Escape from New York. Oh, that's Slim <laughs> I make mistakes like everyone else, too. I warned you in the pilot. What did Bob look like in factory new condition? No one has ever depicted that. And when I get spare time, I wanted to before this, but I want to get some spare time and just try to do a rendering of new Bob, not old Bob. Uh, a barbecue with two legs. Or maybe three. Really? It's a practical design that these robots are care- are running around on impellers that they have anti-grab, at least sufficient to do that. It's the goddamn Disney eyes. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was kind of. Did they have to put eyes on this thing? Did they? Well, <laughs> big eyes are inviting. They make you feel like you could trust the character. But come on, they're gigantic Barney Google googly eyes. Kit didn't have eyes. He had a flashing light. R2D2 didn't have eyes. He had flashing like blinking lights. Maximilian uh, ain't got no eyes. He's got. A real angry eyebrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay. There are so many damn little generalities, but they don't really say anything about why the hell this interests me. The religious thing does. So let's go to that. Let's just take on the damn big issue. So uh, so Reinhardt wants to go into this damn black hole and through it. And if you know anything about science, your first instinct is to go no way. And yeah, there is no way. Uh, Reinhardt can do it because, as the film sort of indicates and the novel definitely indicates, he came up with two discoveries. He came up with a nullifier that bends gravity waves around his ship that's what keeps it safe and that's what he thinks will keep him safe in the black hole at the event horizon also you can't do anything other than just hang around unless you have something that can get you to real speeds for that you need real power so he finally he he invents the big Trekkian trope of sci-fi propulsion, isolating and harnessing usable power from matter antimatter reactions. Most geeks know what goes on there. Tiny amount of matter, tiny amount of antimatter, bring them together. The release of energy is huge. His brain is that good. He's figured out how to do it. All of this is just basic techno babble. I don't go into the physics of techno battle that much in this movie because it doesn't matter. And in any case, it's been superseded by what 30, 40, 50 years of physics since I don't care about that. It's what it's what Reinhardt wants to do. It's his ambition that makes this thing interesting. He wants to go into the black hole. Yeah. But why? To start with, the film says he wants, quote-unquote, life forever. It's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, if you hang around 40 years at the event horizon, a thousand years might pass on Earth, and for you, they would still only be 40 years. But you wouldn't extend your actual lifetime that way. 
But if you think, but if he passes through the center, Reinhardt thinks whatever universe he emerges into is different to human conceptions of time. Those 40 years could extend to 400, 4,000. They may not be an upper limit to his lifespan at all. If the aging process is effectively arrested, that's life eternal. But the novel makes clear this isn't just about life forever. This is where the novel really comes in handy and where the really interesting idea goes. Now we're getting to the literal Charles Manson level of where Reinhardt's head is at. He describes this in the novel in terms of conquest. I don't think victorious is too strong a claim for the triumph I shall experience, he says. And when I have done what I say I shall do, others will try to follow. And if successful in such attempts, they will then have to deal with me. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> We're talking about whoever coming in after him would have no role to play in his new universe unless they do what everyone else around him has done, subordinate their wills to his. And if necessary, he's created the beginning of his own entirely self-sustaining mechanical civilization, which bends to his discipline. And that's quite enough for him. It's probably even preferable. So no, it's not about expanding human knowledge. Reinhardt doesn't give a shit, one-eighth of a shit, about expanding knowledge of what goes on inside a black hole. Reinhardt wants to storm the gates of heaven, so to speak, and cast God down from his throne. And when he does, it's his, and he's keeping it. That's fucked up. But hey, again with the religious and or metaphysical theme being developed further and now tied to the utterly common human failing, hubris. And again, this can be focused further in a remake. The contrast of faith versus the complete and utter indifference of the universe, as science depicts it. The various crew members aboard the Palomino may have varying degrees of belief or lack of belief in a god. Durant probably finds what evidence of God he needs in his study of God's creation, the universe itself. His language clearly leans that way. But that doesn't necessarily spell out his religious views. Reinhardt definitely believes in a god, but he thinks that he's it. But what about the black hole? The black hole doesn't believe shit. The black hole is simply reality. It's the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, the mystery of existence that both fascinates people and makes them tremble, for which the concept of God is a completely inadequate metaphor in this case. It, like the universe itself, is indifferent beyond our comprehension. This black hole is a flame that this stupid genius asshole about moth is going to annihilate himself against. That's creepy. What do you think? I I mean, I saw this as soon as I started listening to the way uh, Hans was talking. I was just thought this guy's been alone for far too long. Uh, <laughs> I just I thought they were I thought they were playing off the space dementia thing. That's just generally what I thought. That works too, which leads <laughs> right into my next point. What happens when one person's force of character or personality? is powerful enough to establish a zone around themselves that the outside world cannot penetrate. We have seen this phenomenon over and over and over and over. And it's 
been used both for good and for ill purposes. It happens with celebrities a lot. Prince, uh, Kevin Smith described it as Prince World in there. It was kind of hermetically sealed environment in which Prince World and Prince's will was what went on in Prince World. Michael Jackson, same. Elvis Presley, same. A lot yeah. of celebrities, same. What about the le the less frivolous versions, the more serious ones? What about criminals? What about cult leaders? What about heads of governments? Hitler. <laughs> One of them. <laughs> That's the most obvious example. But, yeah, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous, potentially, when a man is so strong in character that he can shut down questioning, shut down opposition, shut down the outside world. Reinhardt has done that here. He has managed to turn all of his former crew, anybody that would have said no, quite literally into reflections of himself, hence the mirrored face plates. Now, whether that is intentional or not, as I've read it, I don't know, but it certainly reads that way. I should point out that Reinhardt did a little bit of a Darth Sidious thing. Uh, the novel clears, uh, clarifies a lot of what happened with regard to what Reinhardt did to his old crew. He'd started programming all the machines around the ship for a long time, even before he got the recall order. And yeah, he opposed that recall over as long as he could, but it became clear that the crew wanted to go the hell home and fuck him. He starts first by building Maximilian as a therapy project for himself. And then he has all of the robots programmed, whatever the Sentry robots' job was prior to, uh, to Reinhardt taking over, were they just there to, like, break up fights? At, like, the ship's bar or something? Break it up. <laughs> You're coming with me. Uh, but then suddenly he activates the programming. He's stuck in all these robots. They take over, not even really knowing. It's Order 66 all over again. And they either kill the ones who are resisting, drag the ones who are off to the hospital, and create literal robots, non-entities, non-humans. People that will not say no. And that's the, that's the thing that terrified me about this, is the fact that you know uh what what happened to those people what terrors happened to those people to turn them into what they what we all see you know That's... yeah and as i said i think it pretty much describes something pretty horrifying and there are parts of the film that at least hint at that like when robert forster's going through the old crew quarters you hear this is kind of a sad wistful music that's at least it's some very vague between the lines level hints at the horror these people went through and it was a horror. Now let's talk about how the crew finally becomes aware of that horror. And it's, it gives me an opportunity, Alex, to talk about a simple thing. Uh, shot composition. And I'll try to get it done very quickly. Uh, let's start with that next image I put up. There it is. And that's just me getting a, giving you a simple hint of the thing. Uh, this is going to be all about basic composition, i.e. where your eye is in uh, directed in the shot, in the image. 
and how that can arrest the eye or help to. Remember what I said about balancing this from that in the last episode? Yes. Uh, this is an example of that. The shot starts with Yvette Mimieu, uh being the center of focus because she's moving. The shot starts with her moving around, turning around, looking around at all these people and realizing just what the shit. But now let's go on to the next image. And I just marked out these lines. What they're meant to represent are the direction your eyes are meant to go in the shot. Here's Yvette Mimieu. As I said, she's at the cent uh, She's the center of your attention at the start of things because she's moving around. Your eye pretty much should be at where her head is. It could go to the left, but then it's cut off by the end of the shot. Your eye goes back to her. So it can only go forward. Now notice there is an angle where from the very humanoid at the left of the shot, going through her head and her eye line through Reinhardt and Durant's eye lines and heads, all the way to the other end of the shot where the two humanoids are. And there is an implication of a straight line. Now my, from point A as marked to point B. Now my, my thought is that's deliberate. That's how you compose a shot. So as to direct your eye from the left through the shot to the right and then back because at the edge of the frame, which we also talked about, there's nowhere for the eye to go. It's got to circle backwards toward the center. And that's right where at the exact point where Reinhardt and Durant move. He says reactors on Anthony Perkins looks around in childlike innocence and you realize very quickly the meant, uh, the intent of the shot is meant to first it reveal to the audience how vulnerable Yvette Mimieux is in this moment. She is one of only two people who aren't fully aware of what's going on. She has just been made aware of what's going on. And she is surrounded by threats. Utterly vulnerable. And, and now... Sorry, the guys are listening on the podcast, not watching on YouTube. Uh, we will put these pictures up on uh, the Yusuk uh, Facebook page, not the group, the page. Okay, so you can look at these. Cool. And and then after Yvette Mimieux is revealed as vulnerable, now Anthony Perkins is revealed as incredibly vulnerable. More so because he's utterly trusting. He's naive and a child. Durant's problem is he too is a romantic, just like... just like Reinhardt, but there are limits for Durant. He too wants to dash himself against a great revelation like a moth against the flame and establish his place in history. And he has his revelation, but it's not the one he intended. He realizes just what a monster Reinhardt is. In a shot that, frankly, you wouldn't expect out of a Disney film, but they were trying to not be a Disney film after all. Uh, this zombie-looking face that breathes heavy. If they're breathing heavy like this, couldn't anybody detect breath coming in and out of the little holes in the faceplate? Or here? <laughs> Do the humanoids need those faceplates to breathe, or is he breathing that heavily for another reason? Yeah. And so Durant has his death. Not exactly a Disney death, is it? 
Also, zombie drone humanoids aren't very Disney either. Also, no. intimate personal yeah. physical violation really isn't Disney either. <sighs> but that's what's at stake here for, for uh, Yvette Mamieu, Dr. Kate McRae. Uh, I mean, seeing uh, Max Maximilian literally drill a hole in someone's chest. You don't see it, obviously. You, you're left to imagine what's happened. But I, I was looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, that's a bit dark for Disney. <laughs> and it was, it was improvised. The original script and the novel has him get hit by a laser and that's it. This is much better. He's holding up all this valuable information that he's been trying to preserve. It doesn't save him, obviously. Uh, Anthony Perkins is bloodless, man. <laughs> no blood. Um, all you have in order to get a sense of this is Anthony Perkins' performance, and it's it sells the gruesomeness of this. Yes. yes it so now there's a chase going through this film. Here's where I want to talk about the damn tonal shifts. Okay, now it's officially turned into Star Wars. Right? Yeah, of course, yeah. It's because uh, for the similar narrative. Well, now. here's where I'm talking about the tonal shifts. It starts as Star Trek, as guys exploring the universe and going to see what they find. And then it becomes Bojest, where they find upon a lost ghost ship. And now it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because it's revealed that this is a horror place and everybody in it is just completely messed with in ways we don't want to discuss. Now it's Star Wars. And before we get to the end of this, it'll be 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. Uh, and that's a problem. This film needed a more consistent tone. Should this have felt more like Alien with loud alarm klaxons and flashing lights and other means of making the environment look scarier? Should it have felt like a more scarier version of Forbidden Planet, which is actually already pretty scary? They need a remake of that film, and they've tried. <laughs> Just as an observation, the hand uh, the hand animated laser and thruster effects are great because it's Disney. The laser sound effects are reused in the GI Joe cartoon that I grew up on. Really, that's a cool fact. Ask Eddie Pence; he'll tell you. <laughs> and I intend to lure him onto the show, and we'll and and we'll probably talk about something that'll tickle his fancy. But the GI Joe lore never hurts. In any case, I don't know if a film like what I'm envisioning could have been possible under Disney in the late 1970s, or indeed any studio. Uh, I, I would love to see a film that focuses all of these themes. We're talking about the differences between faith and science. We're talking about the fact of the differences in between people of faith one entirely selfless and one entirely selfish. Uh, a re We're talking about big-ass ideas, and I'm a big sucker for ideas. And ultimately, that's the lore this film has for me, even though it's a big piece of cheese. Speaking of, are those asteroids flying around in the film, or are those cheesy poofs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely cheesy poofs. They look like cheesy poops. Um, let's talk about briefly about the black hole star crash and the hideous violations of physics that occur in both films when people forget about the concept of a vacuum. 
because we have people just going around and stuff where apparently the ship has been hauled and they should be in no shape whatsoever. They're fine. I hate it. You hate it. <laughs> I hate that. I really do. I don't know. But there, there was a time in movies where people just thought they could get away with stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? And I guess it falls into that into that crevice. And, you know, it hits Star Wars too. And just in more subtle ways. And it's still apparent even in the sequel trilogy. And we'll get to that. And at least the at least Star Wars does it consistently. This attempts to be both hard science and not science at all. Why didn't the big asteroid just keep, keep going in the direction it was going in uh, rather than just get stuck in the ship and roll down the main corridor like that? Yeah, there was one of the uh, the critique notes that that mentioned that as what well, as like an, an almost glorious effect that they did. <laughs> and it could punch through the top of the ship, just not the bottom. It just rolls down the main corridor, and then what? It just gets lodged there because we don't see it punch out the other side of the ship. Also, was there going to be like a wild asteroid air car tube ride at Disneyland if this film had been at all successful? <laughs> Run away from the asteroid, kids, or you may die. Where they they all get on that train, it goes through that like straight air car tram ride through the tube, which gets loose from the ship and starts going whoa, whoa, and was that gonna be like done as a ride at Disneyland? Had that film worked at all? Yeah, I'm Absolutely. cynical, but <laughs> I put enough. it to you that that was a plan. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Maybe it fits into everything that uh, maybe there was like a a ride that had loads of different aspects. They had the uh, the car that takes you around the ship, maybe. Really, yeah. and I can't say that wouldn't be a fun ride or a simulator ride. Clearly, but no. <laughs> okay, so which means, by the way, we're at the black hole, the red hole. Frankly, that was a red ass seg segment of the film. I love red. <laughs> Don't think it wasn't noticed. That bothered you, right? Because you pointed it out. Yeah, it did. Because I just thought it would. I mean, cinematically, it doesn't make for it doesn't make for good imagery. I don't think. I, I feel like a lot gets lot a lot gets lost in that red vastness, and it just it didn't look good for me. No, I'm not. It, yeah. I'm not saying there's no physics reasons for it as as like as stuff gets pulled into the black hole faster and faster and faster it gets excited and gets hotter and therefore yes there would be glowing going on you've seen that in other movies but wow it's all red paint and I love paint in tank special effects but I don't know about this I mean they're not Leonard Susskind, by God, but they're trying to have an interesting black hole, but uh, it's execution again. Reinhardt's death is interesting. All light, not bad as last words go. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm guessing in the book, and I'm guessing in real world physics, the control tower gets pulled off from the rest of the ship and falls in on its own. It probably it was hauled prior to that, so he would have had had sucked out the damn window and just died in vacuum. We need to talk about the effect of spaghettification. Alex, the last picture, if you please. Uh, coming right up, sir. Here you go. Here's your picture. This picture, 
tells us probably a little more about what really would be happening to Dr. Reinhardt in this damn thing, and probably would be covered in uh, in a remake. Let's let Wikipedia describe the basics of it. If you, let's talk about a, pardon me, let's talk about a fictional astronaut with gas. <laughs> Brilliant, Eric. Oh, right, ladies and gentlemen, Eric Fluger. He's here all night. <laughs> Thank you. I'm here all week. At the Chuckle Hut. And this fictional astronaut passes through the black hole's event horizon. He's stretched like spaghetti because of the gravitational gradient, the difference in strength from where it's pulling on its head to where it's pulling on its toe. I mean, the gravity force exerted by the singularity, again, according to Wikipedia, is much stronger at one end of your body, in this case, the feet, than the other, in this case, the head. So if one were to fall into the black hole feet first, the gravity at their feet would be much stronger. The person is caused to be vertically stretched. And the right side of the body will be pulled to the left and the left side to the right, horizontally compressing you. Basically, your body will be stretched and stretched and stretched until it becomes a thin pasta-like string of plasma. So you're going to die. You're going to die. Now let's... Let's imagine that he falls through the event horizon feet first because it means it'll take that much longer for him to frickin' die, and he that dies that much frickin' slower, dick. Uh, now, could a shot in in a modern film do that? Depict that? A long tracking shot of him being pulled into spaghetti in horrid agony that's both weird and cool? I think they could. Don't see why it's not possible. But surely, with um, with a time dilation thing that's going on, it would take your feet a lot longer to go through. You know I mean, like your feet—you'd <laughs> rejoin with your body, no matter how stretched, like in like you know, ridiculous amounts of years. Do you know what I mean? So your feet would, could possibly end up years older than the rest of your body. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, this is where we get into the weeds on what black holes are like. And for this, I must defer to actual experts, not my dumbass, who just wikipedia things for a movie made in 1979. And that said, though, let's see what that movie does with this black hole. Speaking of by God, there is God all over this ending. They didn't really know what they were going to do for a while, I might point out. You could probably figure that out just by watching it. Uh, as you said, the event horizon looks like hell, too, because it's so freaking red. I mean, it may be Christmas again, but it's not Santa red. It's Satan red. And, okay, that ups the fear. Maximilian goes to hell with him and goes, I'll show you. I'm going to sell really well as an action figure. And this is straight 2001 A Space Odyssey. But the visuals are just constrained by the relative simplicity of imagination brought to this Judeo-Christian iconography, which the film wants to play with. They would have worked better, I think, with a more creative visualist at the helm. Vincent Ward took the same material and made what dreams may come, man. And that sort of, that sort of eye... Uh, needs to be done. A remake could do a better take on the spiritual angle with a better budget, better focus, and a better result, I assume. Trippy as hell, 
quite conceivably transgressive as hell, uh, but you'd remember it, wouldn't you? Also, now when we get to hell, it's pink. We're in pink hell because Reinhardt's floating around in this kind of pink space. Is it because Reinhardt and Maximilian get together? And then they go to hell, and it's not even a Dante-type underworld. I have three translations and one modernized translation of Dante's Inferno. Let me assure you, Dante's Inferno is far more elaborate, way more organized, and far more imaginative. And that's why it became the last word on the genre of vision literature for centuries. Uh, and what we see here is it cool and interesting, but it ain't Dante. So try not to evoke Dante, please. If you're not going to do them. And we're in blue heaven, red hell, pink hell, and blue heaven. The visuals here are very interesting because they're this, because of the mirrored image of this corridor they go down. I don't need the angel. I like how it ends with this white hole, and the physics of a white hole or white fountain are known, just not by me. Uh, all intents and purposes, they're the reverse of a black hole. If a black hole sucks in matter, draws in matter, a white hole or white fountain actually expels matter into the universe or a universe. We need to factor in that they may have just passed through an actual wormhole, which links to completely separate points in space and time, possibly including two different universes. Which leads to the last question. Alex, where the hell are these people? Uh, there we go. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, clearly. Can you? Yeah, I don't know what happened. My my, my PC crashed like 90s style. You know when everything used to just freeze up? Couldn't click anything, so you'd have to do a hard reset. Uh, that's what happened to me. Um, so you were just about, you said, I don't know if you, this goes by your notes, but you said, uh, which leads me to one final question. Um, so what I'll do is I'll just piece them up together for the YouTube video. It's going to be a bit more difficult. But uh, if you are listening to this, I'm watching this on YouTube, and you're wondering why there's a real hard edit in this video, because uh, technology has let me down. So Eric, I'll please pass you back the mic. Uh, so you said... Uh, uh, which leads me to my, my final question. Uh, which leads you know. me to my final question. Where the hell are these people? Yes. For that right. matter, where are we, you and I? Sorry, audience. Uh, technical difficulties can happen. <laughs> we are made of human flesh. Yes. Uh, it'll be a hard edit, but hopefully a big gap of silence won't be there. And that's all that matters. Me going, what the so, fuck's yeah. going on? <laughs> we fell into the black hole and now we're gone. Ah, and you're just supposed to listen to two empty microphones. We got spaghettied. That sounds good, man. Okay. Where are they? Do you have an answer, Alex, first? What do you think? I think they went to uh, an alternate universe where um, human beings have been replaced by uh, apes. Um, <laughs> Damn you all to hell! Ah. But that's the that's the mystery, isn't it? You know, that's like when you watch a movie like this, and say you're thirteen, fourteen. I know you, you're at the age where your imagination's running rife. Where would you like to go? Where would you hate to go? Um, it's all it's all up there in your your conscious mind, isn't it? Your your imagination. Yes. Yeah, so, um, to to be fair, 
there are not no clues or no options. Uh, the comic would have you think that they're either in this or another universe, but certainly safe, alive. And they're like, well, we're trying to find new life and habitable planets. Let's go find one for ourselves. Because there's only so many damn, like, like food items on that probe ship. Is this what Reinhardt was going for, do you think? Just another place in space? (sighs) Boring. The novelization goes one weirder where they're literally dissipated, like as if they're in the cosmic force or something. They're energy now, but they can still think and have senses of selves, even the robot. Hmm. And they go off and explore their new reality that way. There was another uh, draft of this thing done by the production designer where they go into the hole, it becomes a white hole, and then becomes this long-ass backing up shot where first they back away from the ship and it vanishes. They back away from the white hole and it vanishes, and it turns into, I believe, Yvette Mimu's eye and then backs away from that. And then backs away more. And then finally, it's revealed that they're backing away from the point on the Sistine Chapel where God and Adam's fingers are touching. And then they back away from that into a full shot of the Sistine Chapel with Yvette Mimu just sitting there looking up at it. Now, they couldn't afford that in a million years back then. They could do it now. I'm a big fan of long tracking shots. Go on YouTube and look up what's called Powers of Ten sometime. Just because it's cool. That would have been interesting, impossible to achieve. What Hmm. would have worked for you, Alex, as an ending, as an answer to all this? Where would would you have wanted to have thought? I would have liked to have seen them um, just evaporate (laughs) to nothing. (laughs) Just gone, just dust in it, just just dust in the uh, in the wind that may have existed in this this version of space they created. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I, I like I like films that aren't ah. Uh, suddenly we're back in Kansas. Do you know what I mean? I, I like films that have like a bit of a darker ending. Um, so I, you know, you feel bad. That would have done it. Yeah, that would have done it. You feel but, bad. Uh, mm. But you know the the team, you kind of wanted them to survive. But I think as soon as as soon as they got on that ship, they were dead. You know that <laughs> that's kind of what needs to be understood is that. Uh, and you know, one of the, I think I did make some notes. Did I make notes? I mean, one of the notes was, "Oh my god, that's a black hole." Um, they're they they're one of the most crit- uh, the most destructive forces in in nature. Do you want to go and have a look? <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? I was, it, it's uh, yeah. I'd send an automated probe, sure, but yeah, let's go ourselves in this rinky-dink tin can that barely holds together. <laughs> Very wise. Now, here's the thing: could they play up the horror film aspect by having it be like Texas Chainsaw or even Alien, where only one person gets out, and that one is a mess? Ripley less so than the girl in Chainsaw Massacre because that actress was just apparently skilled in playing people at the edge of panic. (laughs) 
get to that some other day. But what if it had been, say, just Kate McRae alone on that probe ship that made it through the, through the, the white hole? Who knows? I don't know if I have an answer, but all of this is a speculation about what if there was a remake, which probably won't happen because the moment they realized that they could just buy Star Wars, there was no need to follow on the Star Wars gravy train. And I feel like the one remake attempt got quashed. I feel like it, uh, Disney owe it to themselves uh, to have a go, see if they could have got it right. You know, without buying Star Wars, even today, you know, obviously they got huge resources, Disney, almost unlimited money, um, and so let's see if with all that now, they could create a very successful black hole movie. They're remaking everything else. Sometimes they're willing to go shot for shot if they have to. Uh, why not mm. this? And because there's simply no way for the physics of this film to hold up now, why not simply? I think John, is it John it? Carter. John Carter. That's that's probably why. Did they, did well, that was their like... last damn attempt to try to follow the gravy chain until they just said, you know what? Fine, let's let's exactly. Stop this. <laughs> they put like a hundred million or something. It's one of the highest grossing flops of all time, isn't it? Although, let me ask you this. John Carter put me to damn near sleep because I couldn't follow that plot so bad. You could at least follow what's going on here. Yeah, kind of. Can't yeah. you? Yeah, of course. It's- and, you know, it does. Okay, so, you know, last episode we were talking about aesthetic arrest, right? Mm. And when you see those mirrored glass on the on the androids, humanoid androids, and then they remove the mask, and you have you do have that moment of, holy shit, um, regardless of how silly the film is, how how stupid the eyes are on the robots, um, you know there is also some incredible dialogue that uh-huh. takes you to that takes you to places where you you kind of you kind of understand um, about how evil this guy is, and you know, yeah, there are moments of this film that are, are worthy of it being. Uh, a discussion point especially on this show and i can understand why it became a little bit of an, an obsession for you especially when it comes to things like design and um you know uh, the design aspects of it are all over the place because some of it is brilliant it really is brilliant there's there was one scene when they went into a room i think it's the first room they went into when they get into cygnus and the lighting the way the lighting was, was set up and the way it was it, it almost looked it looked it looked like uh is it geiger giga geiger giga almost looked like a geiger, geiger, port, geiger portrait you know i was kind of really really impressed by how they did that and you know it could have just been a warehouse somewhere you know and they just threw some curtains up and put some light in but the way they did it was actually really nice so yeah i feel well, like the, i feel the like... real the real trophy there is the person you need to thank for that is the ellen shaw's father and son um i'll just pivot to what i very briefly wrote about those guys before we uh hit the off button uh there we are obviously there's a certain amount of scrolling around of notes that's one reason why i never wanted a camera on this show because i look dumb doing that uh peter ellenshaw is one of the greats he started in the 1930s but his true fame comes from his work doing matte paintings for disney films beginning in 1950 
Treasure Island, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Mary Poppins. He got an Oscar for that one. Now, his son Harrison Ellenshaw, head of the visual effects for Black Hall, he also was at ILM doing matte paintings for Star Wars and Empire. They both did a crap load of matte, matte paintings for a crap load of films. They both got Oscars for their work on the Black Hole. Which brings us to, yes, whatever we might think of the script, the visuals are laudatory. They're worthy of praise. Mixed execution, yes, by our standards today. But I think it just points out that between that and some of the ideas we dissected here, okay, yes, this is an imperfect film by all means. But there's not nothing here. There's not no good ideas. There's not no good visuals. There's not no good performances. There are good visuals, ideas, performances. Uh, mixed execution just it, it brings down many a film from being 100% perfect. And that's why I talk about how the arrangement of forms in an image or whatever the cinema making version there is matters. I've shown you how it matters in one individual image with regard to shot composition, but we're talking also about overall project composition here. If it had better, if it had a better tone, a more consistent and scarier tone, if it had played decisive. up the ideas, go on. And a more decisive ending. <laughs> if it had been more decisive in its take on matters of faith. Yeah. We are all about big, spacey 70s ideas in our movies, and this film is no exception. It's not Star Trek The Motion Picture, but it's great uh, when it comes to ideas. It just needs to execute them better. Uh, visuals just needs to execute. Uh, great themes just needs to execute those better. Uh, so if we're going to ask why the hell I have carried this film around for longer, perhaps, than I should made it component of my life perhaps longer than I should and to a greater depth than I should. It really comes down to it has those nuggets of good in it and I am prepared to forgive a decent amount if I think there's something there. Yeah. Simple as that. Good. Now, Alex, it really comes down to your take on the film. <laughs> Well, this I, is obviously going to be way different than mine, but I want to hear it unfiltered. Go. There, I mean, like there are some. Sometimes a small little detail can ruin a film for me. Um, the, 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 what you were talking about, you know, but about space not being pressurized, and you know, something breaks, and there's like wind going. And the, 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 the simple things they used to do to simulate something breaking in space. So, oh, is people going to get blown out of the air hatch and stuff? None of that, you know, was. It was good for me. Um, <laughs> I thought <laughs> I thought the robot designs were, were even of that day. I mean, in that day and age, um, seventy nine, um, they come up with great concepts for androids, robots, um, you know, uh, droids in Star Wars, and, you know, all, all these sort of things. And so, like, I think they they could have done a lot better with the robots. That the you know, with Bob and, and Vincent, the eyes for me were just they're just silly. They're just silly because the, the robot designs themselves for that. I like you said, it's not a bad little design, and you can understand why they're designed that way. 
and then they just slap these sticker eyes on them and it's just it's just crazy might as well just put boggly eyes on them um the acting i thought wasn't too bad i thought um i've lost my, my tabs now but uh who's the the uh, the young lieutenant um well, he keeps. They, they were just like, we're not going to give you any serious dialogue for this. We're just going to give you one. Joseph Bottoms. Yeah, we're just going to give Joseph you. Joseph Bottoms was damn good in Holocaust, the miniseries back in the mm-hmm. day. Uh, worth watching. It's, it's this script is not his usual. Yes, he's got quips and that's it. Just as Vincent has just you know witticisms and um, like philosophy observations. Is it weird that uh, Vincent reminds me of Andy McElfresh? from education don't know if you listen to that show he doesn't remind you of me um uh yeah yeah i mean the, the thing is uh, i don't know there was a there was a gentle but uh, there's a gentle a gentle thing of, uh, i don't know it, it was just it was just hard it was just hard it was obviously made to look really gentle and stuff but then he starts taking out the big baddies and stuff you know it's, it's fake. but what i do want to point out to you, show you eric is what, what i was doing while you were chatting is i was looking for for the toys um the toys uh-huh. uh, you know you'll know uh did this create like because i've got pictures here of the old classic toys here well i talk and talk and talk i give you plenty of time to do it um this looks uh, like the stuff to me yeah uh, i remember is, that this uh, collection here it was on ebay for over 300 pound don't you be surprised as i say we're in the wood 370 dollars <laughs> 350 370 dollars so yes that's that's what that is and funko how did release uh some um some black hole uh funko <laughs> pops 33 it's over say say about 40 bucks they'll get you a little vincent uh, and this one is about the same time. I think it's about this one's about thirty-two books. I think uh, Maximilian Funko Pop. Uh, I think they're quite cool. They're quite nice, aren't they? Look at that. They're good designs for robots. Yes, the googly eyes. I don't think anybody's <laughs> complaining about Maximilian looking stupid, though, are we? That was pretty yeah, creative. They they were like, "Have you got any uh, any wi- electric whisks lying around?" Use uh, <laughs> 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 Why didn't he run away? Like, he's got those those blades coming towards you. He's like, it's a bit like Austin Powers with a steamroller. No, <laughs> you know what? Just dodge out the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Now this oh. guy would be like Ed Two O Nine these days, wouldn't he? Uh, or a Dalek, I suppose. <laughs> you know, Dalek I can't should... not exterminate. <laughs> oh God, that's a different kettle of fish. At least, for better or worse, Maximilian can navigate stairs and things. <laughs> but no, I do, I do thank you for letting me watch, not letting me watch, but encouraging me to watch <laughs> this, this film. And I hope you guys are, are, are watching this or listening to this, have gone and done your homework and watched this, because otherwise a lot of this isn't going to make sense. And that's what we're going to be doing with Yellow Nick Clouds. We will be giving you bits of homework and stuff to do. And we also talked as well last week about possibly bringing on some art projects and things getting you guys to make stuff or us to make stuff and i thought that was a very exciting aspect to this show because you don't like what what do you, what can you do with a podcast you can sit and you can you can blast people with facts you know shoot them straight in the face fact bam fact bam uh, or we could all go and learn together by uh, showing people what we've done and you know how cool would it look if on our instagram I don't and face hit you in the face i gently wipe your face with facts <laughs> with one of maximilian's blades just gently yeah. in the cheek 
Oh, yeah, well, gentle. Thank you very much for that, Eric. That was really good. Well, did I mind the hell out of a film that didn't? It, I, this is all. This is longer, in fact, than the film. I just checked the clock. It's longer than the film. Well, you know. that was that was ninety minutes in and out. Here we are at one fifty. Oh, I mean, oh. what you've done is you've you've taken what I considered not to be a terrible movie, but a film that just just couldn't get it right, um, and you've you've added like that, that it was like it was nearly something very very special because of some of the, the the components that they had in there, but there was just some of the other components that just ruined it a little bit, you know. Um, yep, it, and that's how a lot of this stuff is from back in our day, and we carry it around as the detritus of our lives, and we still build things on top of it. And to an extent, it matters to us, but we must be honest it, in that it wasn't that good, and it shouldn't be that important. I acknowledge the dumbness of it that I've elevated it to this level. I feel I feel like we want uh, the uh, the familiars, uh, which is what we're calling the you suck fans now. By the way, you suck yeah. familiar. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> it's a vampire joke. Uh, the familiars. What I want you to do <laughs> is get behind this and let's start a petition. Let's get them to remake the black hole. I just, I just want. I'm really curious. Would you be offended if they remade it, Eric? Well, not at all. I've been talking about remaking it and what if they did that for the whole two almost hours of this thing. I've just pointed out where my preference would be in terms of focus on a remake. And as I said, they tried. They tried quite hard. They made a valiant attempt at it with a valiant, good screenwriter. Uh, it just didn't go anywhere because the, the, the movement of society just went in a different direction. But Disney uh, have got that fuck you money now, haven't they? They've got literally we can do what we want. Um, so what? Yeah, let's 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 get on it. Let's just <laughs> somebody write to Disney and be like, "Hello there, um, my name's Alex. Uh, I'm a podcaster from Shrewsbury. <laughs> yeah, I know you got to yeah, listen to me. Talk to Kip Thorne. Get him to help you advise on your screenplay. You know, <laughs> get started. I'm not going to live forever. You are going to live forever, Eric, and the reason being uh, you're going to live forever is because your your artwork is, is up in, in the new Smog Castle, right? I'm going to live forever, and thanks this, for the guys. segue. The guys, the guys on YouTube um, that are watching right now, you got to see the picture. Um, I'm going to do like picture one, picture two, picture, I'll label the pictures when we put them on our Facebook page. Better I'm one? Showing a, Better showing a Pitching out of uh, the crowd. Uh, uh, they've got to work on that seating, by the way, at Smog Castle. That does not very comfortable at all, but I guess it's all new. It's all new. Um, now, for those of you who don't know what you're looking at, Kevin Smith filmed the original film Clerks in the building that he worked at, which had both a video store and a Quick Mart in it. Uh, convenience store in it. Uh, over time, the store stayed... Uh, they bought the video store and they made it into this Smod Castle, a New Jersey-based podcast theater where podcasts can be recorded. And obviously they had to decorate it with stuff in addition to the monitors on the side featuring the handsome face of Mark Bernardin. Uh, so various pieces of art were chosen, obviously from Kem Kevin's home collection. Now, if hanging in Kevin's own home is first prize, this is a magnificent second prize to be put at the capital, ground zero of the Askew universe itself. 
to be put in the very building, Clerks, Clerks 2, and now Clerks 3, as of this week's announcement, will be filmed. And yeah. I am beaming in the knowledge that my work sits there. That's like having it sit at Eden, you know, or the point of the Big Bang. And look at the people in that crowd. You know, you got Josh Roush there, Mike. Um, who else is there? There's some familiar faces in that crowd. Uh, mm. But yeah, there's a, what a great legacy, hey? So, well and done. I therefore tip my cap to and extend my thanks to Kevin for this singular honor. Not the singular, because multiple artists have, uh, are there, obviously. But I, I, it, I feel like it's a special one. And I, was I, I, I was talking to I you. I was talking to my son. He's sixteen. Uh, he's come to stay with me for a couple of days. Um, about about you, Eric, and how we met, and how I knew of you, and how you came to be on my show. And he's like, Dad, one day you're going to be so famous. Look at this. Look at this. What? Look what you've done. What? And I was just like, What? <laughs> I was like, Me and Eric have put this together ourselves. Like, but you know, that's that's how privileged I am to have you on the show, Eric. You know, because. Uh, you're a star. You're a star, man. All things of importance begin, generally speaking, with one or more persons getting together to just do something. Keep that in mind. That's how it starts. Absolutely. Well, look, and I'm not you, saying you... this like I'm some hero, but yeah, that's a that's an that's a maxim you guys can adapt. Well, you can be my hero, baby. Um, <laughs> I oh. can take away the pain. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't need that. another hero <laughs> we don't need another way home oh gosh right we've got like four minutes before we get a roundup on two hours in those four minutes would you mind if i tell uh the listeners uh, about some things that we're doing eric please i've taken up way too much time already go for it <laughs> okay so um we have a website, guys. Make sure you check out our website. There's lots going to be going on there soon. Our website is usucknetwork.com, uh, and that's powered by our friends at Web Orchard. Um, if you need a website, uh, make sure you check out Web Orchard. They do a great job. Uh, our website looks fantastic. Uh, you can play all of our audio on there. you find out a little bit about all the hosts. We need to put something up there about you, Eric, now, because you are part of the USUC team. Um, and we are doing something very special. Special, uh, very special indeed. Um, soon, but first, actually, I need to tell you about uh, one of the shows that I do as well, which is What's the Difference podcast with my my, my pod brother uh, Tom Bruno. Uh, you know, US culture, UK culture, a lot gets lost in translation. So we speak to a lot of uh, creators, artists, writers, uh, anybody from either side of the pond that can kind of tie up the gaps between us and build a bridge over the Atlantic. Um, uh, we also obviously have Yelling at Clouds and we have Wednesday Night Live where we meet 9 p.m. every Wednesday, 9 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Um, and that is a, just a live show where we meet up. It's almost like meeting up at the pub, catching up with your mates. That's what we do there. Um, yeah. But also we have an amazing event coming up for you guys and in September. Um, and that is part aid i can say this now um it, on the 29th of september at 9 a.m uh, i'm gonna go live and i'm not gonna stop until 
9 a.m. on the 30th of September. Uh, and this is in order to raise, raise money for Lingen Davis, who are a local cancer fund here in, in Shrewsbury. Um, and uh, the, re- the reason I'm doing this is because I want to encourage all content crea- creators out there in the world uh, to go out there and do something positive for your community. So Pod Aid is going to be a thing that's going to grow every year. And next year, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to challenge people to do better than what we've done so we have 24 hour long slots with some great guests eric is going to be one of them with jc jc reifenberger right reifenberg reifenberg that's his name the owner of the scum and villainy podcast jc reifenberg and uh we shall meet on the honorable field of battle and exchange star wars trivia (laughs) Great. And I expect him to uh, bring his A game and definitely impress me. I hope I can impress him in turn. I very much look forward to uh, the uh, uh, Good Nature Challenge and just interacting with him. He has had a great series of accomplishments and and it will be an honor. Um, As time goes by, because I know this is going to be released in about a month when we're recording it um there's going to be changes so we've got like a, a text to donate number uh we're going to have changes to the schedule we've got lots of comms going on for who are the reach are fantastic who are doing reach media are our pr marketing comms experts and they're, they're sponsoring our event so they're doing all our artwork logos um and they're running our social media too um so there's going to be lots of developments so please uh, go to um pod aid on facebook uh instagram uh, linked in uh, and there's also our youtube channel we need as many subscribers as possible on our youtube and i know that's really odd to ask is this youtube page sat there with no content on it uh, but we need your subscriptions so that we can do more with the page if that makes sense so we're begging people basically if you can subscribe and we just wait for the magic to happen we would appreciate that so that's pod aid uh, on um on youtube so yeah i ain't too proud to beg if it's for a good cause please everyone out there do what you can for for this it is a noble cause it's worthy of your attention Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. Right, should we get out of here? We've been doing this for two hours yes, now, Yes, let's. Don't worry, folks. The next one will be a, uh, certainly briefer and a lot simpler than this. Uh, I promise mercy, folks. Mm-hmm.